Welcome to the Cross-Border Interview Podcast, a podcast about getting out from behind the keyboard and just talking. Each week, we invite a guest or two to sit down and talk about their life and their work. I'm Christopher Brown, your host, and this is the Cross-Border Interview Podcast featuring Sven Robinson, former member of Parliament. Today's guest is the former member of parliament for Burnaby. And there's a few other writings of their uh, Burnaby Kingsway, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. and Burnaby, yeah. another one. But, Burnaby uh, Douglas. Burnaby <laughs> Douglas. Oh, I knew I was going to forget that one. But um, uh, Sven Robinson, thank you so much for doing this. Greatly appreciate it. My first question to all my political guests is the same one. Where did your sense of duty come from? Sense of duty. Um, boy, that is a, it's a good question, actually. Uh, I, um, I was a, an activist and a rabble rouser and a shit disturber from the time I was a kid. Uh, so, you know, I think it was probably in my, my genes, Chris, but, uh, but both my parents were, uh, both my mom and dad were, were activists, were progressive, were socialists. Uh, and uh, I think they instilled those values in me. And then uh, as a kid, I, I tried to live those values and uh, uh, going through university, I was active in student politics uh, uh, and then uh, got involved with the NDP. But yeah, it started, I think, at a, at a really early, early age. Was the NDP perfect for, for you? Um, as and when you ask, actually, there were points at which <laughs> that would be the furthest description from anybody's mind, including the, the NDPs. Um, you know, there were a few bumps along the road. Um, but but as uh, a youth. Uh, yeah, well, as a youth and, and beyond. I mean, as a member of parliament, for sure. Um, but, uh, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, uh, as a socialist um, uh, in the Canadian political context, the NDP is, uh, is, is, is where it's at. And so... Um, with all of the challenges uh, that, that we face, um, uh, that for me, that was my family that, that, and, and is my political family. You decided to run in 1979 for the general election, for the nomination for the NDP in the newly created riding of Burnaby. Was that a tough decision for yourself or was it an easy decision? And why did you do it? Why in 1979 did you say, this is the time for me? Well, just a slight correction. It was actually 1977, Chris, that I, I went for the nomination. I, at the tender age of 25, um, uh, I had um, I had been active, very active in the party. Um, the uh, the first NDP government uh, was elected. Dave Barrett was the premier. It was a very very activist government, 72 to 75. I was the president of the Younger Democrats uh, during that uh, that government, and uh, was active in student politics at UBC. As I mentioned, I was the first student to be elected to the Board of Governors, for example, at, at UBC. I helped lead a rent strike at, in student housing at, uh, at, at, at UBC. And so um, when I was approached by the executive uh, members uh, in my riding, in, in, in the, Burnaby, the new Burnaby riding, um, and asked whether I would consider running, um, I thought, yeah, you know, this, this could be exciting uh, and uh, a way of, um, of translating my kind of political philosophy into, philosophy into, into action. And so I did. Um, I, I, I went for the nomination. Uh, it was a it was a battle royal, though, because two weeks before the date of the nominating meeting, I got a phone call from the president of Simon Fraser University, which is located in the riding, Pauline Jewett, uh, really a national figure, former MP, liberal MP. And, you know, she uh, told me that she had the support of every party establishment person you could name. And would I support her as well? 
Uh, and my immediate reaction was, hey, sure, you know, I'm just starting out my legal career and, you know, this is a star candidate. But my writing executive said, no, you hang in there. Uh, they were very supportive, grassroots membership. And long story short, I ended up uh, winning the nomination, much to many people's surprise, including my own. Uh, and um, uh, it was, um, it was a, it, I mean, the headlines the next day were, you know, radical student leader defeats university president. <laughs> it was quite the, uh, quite the show. Um, and I went on to win the riding narrowly in 79 and then uh, held it for seven elections, actually. So that 1979 election, um, how was it to see your name on the ballot for the first time? You hear so many people give the explanation of seeing their name on the ballot to go in and vote for yourself. But for you, how was that experience to actually see your name on a ballot where people are actually going to vote for you or no, vote against you in some ways as well? It was it was very humbling, actually, I mean, and, and kind of overwhelming, um, you know, because so many of my political heroes uh, had been members of parliament. And uh, I mean, my first federal election campaign, Chris, I worked for Tommy Douglas in my riding. Uh, it was 1968. I was a kid. I was 16 years old and Tommy was my hero. And uh, it was it was heartbreak that your election, you know, um, he, uh, he lost. We lost by, you know, just a handful of votes. It was Trudeau, Trudeau mania. Um, and then uh, in 79, Tommy stepped down, actually. But we, uh, Tommy and I were, were friends. And so I, I was elected the year that Tommy stepped down. And I, I was just, I was kind of in awe of the fact that, you know, who am I to, to be a candidate, you know, along the line, the, 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 in, in the place of giants like, like Tommy. So it, it was humbling. But uh, it was also just incredibly exciting. Okay, I, I've got to ask you about Tommy yeah. Douglas. How was he as a personal person? Because you hear these stories as a politician of Tommy Douglas, but as a person, what was Tommy Douglas like? He was he was wonderful. Um, he, you know, he was um, he had a great sense of humor, uh, a really wicked sense of humor. Um, uh, he, he he was as progressive as they come. He lived his values. He was a, a humble, kind. Um, compassionate man. He and, and, and Irma, his uh, his wife, um, just just amazing people. Um, he was a powerful orator, of course. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I'm sure you've seen many of the the, the videos and stories of, of Tommy. I remember the '86 convention. Um, and, but and he, but he also liked to kind of poke fun. And I, I can just share a quick story. For example, um, when I was first elected in in '79, I went to Parliament Hill. It was May of '79. Uh, and, and Tommy was there and he said, Sven, he says, I'm stepping down. He says, would, would you like my office? And I was like, would I like your office? I mean, this is like God asking, you know, <laughs> and I said, Tommy, that'd be wonderful. It'd be an incredible honor. Right. Uh, and so he said, the, the, there's one little problem. He says, um, uh, this is my office. I, you know, I was up on the sixth floor of the, of the center block and he says, this is my office. He said, but you'll see that, that I can't access my staff. They're in the, ne the next office and there's no, no, no communication between the two offices. And I said, well, put a door in, Tommy, right? Why didn't you? He says, no, no, no. Stanley Knowles wouldn't let me. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean Stanley Knowles wouldn't let you? He said, well, you know, Stan, Stanley is house leader and we have to pay attention to Stanley. And so uh, anyway, I, I said, oh, well, that's interesting. And so um, it was the summertime. I proceeded to ask the house to have a door put in <laughs> between my office and the, the, the next door office. Stanley came back, was absolutely outraged. You know, how on earth could you do this? Tommy Douglas wasn't allowed to do it. And you know, you put a door, and of course I feigned innocence. 
I had no idea Stanley what was going on. And Tommy afterwards came by and he was roaring with laughter. He said, Sven, good for you. <laughs> no, he was, he, was, he was an amazing man. And I, you know, I mentioned my, my last writing name was Burnaby Douglas. You can imagine who that was. Exactly. Um, talking about getting elected in the House of Commons, take me through the first moment stepping on the House of Commons floor. Not a lot of people in Canadian history can say that they've done that. You are one of the few people who can say they've done that. How big of a moment was that for you to step on that floor and think, I have now become part of Canadian uh, culture because I'm in the center of Canadian government and I will make decisions that will affect people from coast to coast to coast, not just the people in my riding. Well, I'm not, I'm not even sure that I, I had those lofty ambitions at that point, Chris. I mean, I was just so, so in like the fact that, that, that I was there. Um, uh, and um, I mean, I, what I remember more than actually, it's funny, more than, more than, than, than being in the House of Commons floor. I mean, that, yeah, that was special. But I just remember walking up the, 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 the sidewalk, up to the entrance to that, that magnificent center block, that building, the parliament buildings, and, 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 and just thinking, my God, I mean, what am I doing here? <laughs> it was just, uh, and, uh, and, and, and sort of feeling really challenged, like, you know, uh, can I do this? Um, and, um, but then, um, uh, you know, I got into the floor and I realized that, hey, you know, um, I have my place here and I have a voice and I'm going to use it to, to, to make a difference. And I mean, one of the first um, actions I got involved with actually uh, wasn't, and this I realized very quickly too, Chris, is that, yeah, you know, it's great to be, uh, you know, in the House of Commons, but the real action goes on outside the House. <laughs> uh, I mean, debates in the House are largely, you know, for show. Decisions are not made in the House. Those decisions are made elsewhere. Uh, and as a, as a young politician, I realized that very quickly. And I realized that if I'm going to effect change, I'm going to have to work with social movements, with activists outside the House, too, to, to get a movement for change. And so... I had a young Chilean refugee, for example, who was fleeing from Pinochet. Uh, his name was Galindo Madrid, uh, shortly after I was elected. Uh, and, um, he, you know, he came to my office and he was going to be deported back to Chile. And I thought, what the heck do I do? Well, um, I said, I called a press conference and I said, I'm offering this young Chilean refugee, Galindo Madrid, the sanctuary of my home. And the media went, what? <laughs> what do you mean the sanctuary? I said, he's going to be, he's going to die if he goes back to Chile. I'm a member of parliament. I'm standing in solidarity with him. And I did. We got support from across the country. I flew him to Ottawa. We camped outside the Minister of Immigration's office, Ron Atke. Um, he finally agreed to allow Galindo to stay after we got the UN High Commissioner and refugees on board as well. And that was one of the early lessons, Chris, when I realized, you know, I mean, you want to make change the inside the house is not the place to do it. It's, it's out there in the community, working with fellow Democrats, working with social movements. That's how you make change. You have made change in more than just that. Um, in the late eighties, you publicly came out as the first openly gay MP uh, in the house of commons. Um, as someone who's admired that my whole life and I've uh, followed your career my whole life, you've been a, uh, a, a sort of a hero for the gay movement in Canada because you came out at the time when the AIDS crisis was full blown. It was not 
uh, socially acceptable in the 80s to be gay because there was a connotation that you'd have AIDS and you'd be able to pass it to somebody. What made you decide in 1988, I believe, to come out? Yeah, it was, I mean, you're right. And, I, and thank you for putting in that context, Chris, because that was really a big factor. And and in the speech that I gave in the House after coming out, it, it was uh, it was in uh, actually the actual date when I did the interview with Barbara Frum on the National uh, was February 29th. So I can celebrate only every four years. But uh, no, it was it was in the middle of the pandemic. I, it was I mean, it was numbing. It was devastating. I was losing friends. I was going to funerals. I was speaking at vigils, uh, confronting homophobia. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget uh, flying in. Actually, I'll tell you a couple of Calgary stories, uh, Alberta stories. Um, I remember flying into um, the airport in Calgary and, um, and, and, and somebody had a big t-shirt saying, you know, AIDS kills fags dead, right? The homophobia was, uh, was incredible. And so I thought if I can, you know, make a difference by coming out, uh, and in my riding in Burnaby, I mean, this was not gay Mecca, right? You know, Burnaby is a suburban working class community. In fact, many of my colleagues said this was political suicide. I mean, I have to say I had terrific support from my caucus colleagues and from, from Ed Broadbent, the leader of the party. They were, they were great. But I think almost all of them thought this was political suicide. It was six months before a federal election. Um, Brian Mulroney was traveling across the country saying, imagine Sven Robinson as Minister of National Defense. <laughs> right? we immediately had buttons made up saying Sven for Minister of National Defense. And they sold like hotcakes. And I thank Brian for helping us to raise funds. <laughs> um, but, uh, but so no, it was hard, uh, but I did it. I mean, a big reason for doing it was, was the, um, was to put a human face and to, to help to fight the homophobia in the face of the, the AIDS crisis. But it was also more than anything else to send a message to young people uh, that, you know, um, you can, you can be anything you want. Uh, and uh, I mean, I told the story and I'll tell it just very quickly. I was up in Haida Gwaii uh, in the, what used to be called the Queen Charlotte Island, beautiful. I was, I was up there in 87, um, two years after I had stood on the line with the Haida nation at, at, at uh, Lyle Island to block logging there and was arrested. And, um, but anyway, I was adopted into the Haida nation. I was up there and a young Haida guy, um, uh, we, we went for a long walk on the beach and. And he started crying and, and I said, what's, what's wrong? What, what, what's going on, Michael? And he said, oh, I can't tell you. And I said, well, what, what is it? Come on, what is it? And anyway, eventually he said, well, I, I'm gay. And, uh, but he says, I, I feel totally alone. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm thinking about suicide. And it was a terrible thing. And of course, that was the reality of many young gay people. Um, the suicide levels were, were huge. And so I said to him, well, Michael, for God's sake, you know, I mean, you know that I'm gay. Why? Because I mean, I had never, I'd never made, made, I'd never hidden anything. I never lied, but I hadn't spoken out publicly. Right? I said, you know, I'm gay. And you know, Tracy looked at me, absolutely astonished. She said, well, but you, you can't be gay. I said, you're a member of Parliament. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, yeah, but I'm, you know, I am. And and I thought about that, and I remember going away and and thinking about it, and thinking, you know, how many other young Michaels are there across the country? Who, who believe they can't do anything they want, who can't fulfill their dreams because they're gay, right? Or because it's a young lesbian or a trans person, I said. And so that was a big influence as well. Uh, and uh, I have to say, I mean, yeah, did I, did I, I got hate mail, I got death threats and everything else, but the letters that I got from young people across the country and their families were just so powerful and so moving that it was, uh, 
it, it, it really made a huge difference. Um, I, I guess I have to say as well, I didn't exactly start a trend. Uh, it was it was six years before the next uh, openly gay member of parliament came out, Riel Menard, my friend from, from Quebec. And there was still a huge amount of homophobia. I'm going to quickly tell one, one more Calgary story. Um, so in 89, the year after I came out, I was invited to speak in Calgary by a group of uh, very... Um, a group, a group of gay and lesbian uh, people, and they were very, very, let's say, discreet. And they called themselves Calgarians Networking Discreetly. <laughs> that was the name of the group, <laughs> CND, Calgarians Networking Discreetly. Um, but they asked me to come and be the keynote speaker at their their big, you know, annual dinner. And so, so I did. And they booked the. Um, uh, the Delta Bow Valley Hotel. I don't even know if the Delta Bow is still around. But anyway, they booked the Delta Hotel uh, and they sold out a couple hundred tickets. They were just thrilled, really excited. But then the Delta found out who the guest speaker was and they canceled the booking. They said, no, we're not going to allow that person to speak at our hotel. Uh, and um, so they canceled the booking. Anyway, long story short, uh, uh, Calgarians Network being discreetly um, I think it was a woman named Ruth Simkin, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, they um, uh, they did. So what do we do? I said, well, I'm going to go public. So I went public. I talked about this as an example of the kind of discrimination that people faced in Alberta with no legislative protection at all. Uh, and uh, long story short, another hotel, the Pallister Hotel, which I think is still around. Pallister Hotel stepped up. They said, well, if the Delta won't host you, we will. And they gave it to us for nothing. Uh, it was a wonderful event at the Pallister Hotel. Uh, and uh, the group ended up changing their name and actually coming out. But, you know, I just have to say it's, it's wonderful to see the changes today. Uh, your partner, Chris Ricardo, who I think made some history in Alberta himself as a, as a minister, if I'm not mistaken, the first openly gay minister, which is yep. incredible. I mean, it would have been unthinkable, right? And so another trailblazer there. But, uh, but I just felt really privileged to be able to help to lay the foundation for other folks as well. Your career spanned from the 70s, the late 70s to 2004. During your time in office, is there one moment you can look at and say, you know what, I'm proud that we accomplished this. I'm proud that we got this done for Canada and for the people of Canada. Uh, yeah, you know what, I, I think more than anything else and as you as you know i was pretty active on a lot of different issues over over the years i've got the scars to prove it um i think more than anything else it would be the decision of the supreme court of canada in 2015 in carter which said that sue rodriguez was right way back in 1993 and the supreme court was wrong back then uh, and which said that Canadians who are suffering, in some cases, terrible uh, anguish and pain, terminal illness, should have the right to make the decision themselves uh, when they want to die. And if they need the assistance of a physician, they should have that. Sue Rodriguez was the person that put that issue on the political agenda in Canada back in 93. And uh, she was a very dear friend. Um, we worked together. I arranged for her to appear before the parliamentary committee. Her Supreme Court hearing was the first televised hearing in Canadian history. Um, she she made an incredible difference, the most courageous woman I've ever known. And uh, and for me to be able to walk that path with her, to support her, 
to be with her when she died, and then afterwards to continue that struggle for many, many years, and then to see the Supreme Court of Canada saying that, yes, we're a country in which our Charter of Rights says that this is a fundamental human right. Um, that, for me, was incredibly incredibly moving and powerful and, and, and empowering and, and an example of how elected representatives working together with amazing people like Sue uh, can make a difference, even if you're not in government. On the flip side, though, is there anything you regret about your public life, about your time in politics? Is there a moment you went, maybe I should have done that vote differently? Maybe I should have stood up a little bit harder for this issue? How much time do we have? <laughs> you have seven minutes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, when you look back, there, of course, absolutely. There's all sorts of points at which, you know, I wish I'd done this differently. I'd wish I, I wish I'd done that differently. Um, absolutely. I mean, the, you know, some of my political decisions, boy, um, I ran for the leadership uh, of the federal party in 1995, for example. And uh, uh after the first ballot, um, I, I, I was I was I was leading on the first ballot. I had almost forty percent of the vote, um, but I felt that if I won, it was pretty clear to me that the party would have been deeply divided. I mean, the the, the feelings were still really really strong. I was a pretty radical young <laughs> member of parliament, and 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 so I just felt no, it was it would be too divided. And so I I threw my support at that point behind Alexa McDonough to lead the party, as I, I was trying to help to bring the party together. Well. Many of the people that, that came to that convention to support me, particularly the young activists, felt deeply, deeply hurt and, and, and betrayed in some cases. They, you know, we came here to support you, Sven, and here you're, you know, abandoning us. And, and you know what? That was a mistake. I should have just, I mean, and no disrespect to Alexa, but I should have hung in there in solidarity with the people that, that had come to support me. And so, you know, yeah, those were the kind of political mistakes that, that happened. Um, at a personal level, of course, uh, it was absolutely devastating to leave politics the way that I left. Uh, the ring incident, which was just completely out of character and, 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 and incredibly uh, painful. Um, I, I, you know, I felt I was letting people down. Um, and, uh, but what I tried to, to, to do was to learn the lessons from that and to share the lessons from that around mental illness, frankly. Um, and I spoke across the country for actually in the next couple of years and tried to say, you know, the, the stigma around that was what prevented me from, from dealing with the issues that I, I obviously wasn't dealing with. And uh, so hopefully out of that terrible situation, something positive came as well. But um, yeah, I mean, whenever anybody looks back, I think you can always look at how could I have done things differently. But on balance, I'd like to think that um, I was able to make a difference uh, as a member of Parliament. Last question before we wrap up here. Um, in 2019, you announced that you were going to run for election in Burnaby North Seymour. Uh, hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. Um, you came a close second, a very close second to the liberal incumbent in the riding. I've got to ask the question, is Sven Robinson done with politics or is there a potential of a comeback in 2021, 2022 or whenever the next general election will be? <laughs> Well, the short answer is that I think I'm cured, uh, but, uh, uh, but, but, you know, you never say never, but no, look, uh, I've, I've told my riding uh, executive, uh, Chris, that I won't be a candidate uh, if the election is uh, coming up soon and that, that they should move forward to elect uh, another, to nominate another candidate, because this year I, I, I'm really excited that I, I was appointed by Simon Fraser University uh, as the J.S. Woodsworth chair at Simon Fraser University. It's, it's really exciting. It's, it's an honor. And, uh, 
and I'm I'm loving that opportunity. Even though everything is zooming and virtual, it's it's still a great opportunity. Uh, and so that's my commitment this year. Um, uh, we have some excellent candidates who are seeking the nomination in my riding. I will certainly do everything I can to support them to to close that gap. We came incredibly close. We actually there were two ridings in Canada in which uh, New Democrats came within a couple thousand votes of defeating a Liberal incumbent. One was mine. The other was Davenport in Toronto. And I'm hoping that we can close the gap in both of those uh, in the coming election. So I'll be I'll be there actively working and supporting my 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 the candidate whoever that is uh, but i won't be a candidate myself in this election well sven i want to thank you so much for doing this we are we have a timeline that for you so that way you can get to your next meeting so i want to thank you so much for doing this greatly appreciate it and uh your your story is so unique and i like i said i've been a fan since i've i i started following politics in 1993 so thank you for everything you've done and thank you for sitting down well, listen, it's great to speak with you and, and thanks for inviting me on the podcast, Chris. And uh, I, uh, I look forward to staying in touch and please give my best to your amazing partner, Ricardo, as well. Thank you once again for listening to the Cross Border Interview Podcast. If you love this episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast, head over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and subscribe, rate us and leave us a review. All the links to our social media accounts are in the show notes or visit www.crossborderinterviews.ca. The Cross Border Interview Podcast was produced and edited by Miranda Brown and Associates Incorporated. Be sure to tune in for our next episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. Once again, thank you. Bye-bye.